Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Teacher's Pet Podcast. This is your host, Trey Kabler. Uh, we've had a very busy summer putting out episodes, so please make sure you guys um, are checking the last couple weeks. We had on Dr. John Cox, who was running for superintendent last week. It was a lot of fun. Um, we're hoping to get the other two candidates on relatively shortly. So, uh, speaking of government positions, uh, I have the privilege today of having someone on that works for the Oklahoma State Department of Education, uh, Mr. Jason Stevenson. And I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself. Thanks for coming on today, Jason. Thanks for having me, Trey. So my name is Jason Stevenson, and I am the director of secondary English language arts for the state of Oklahoma. I work in the Office of Curriculum and Instruction, and I've uh, been in this position for three years now. So now starting on my fourth year. So it's my senior year. I should have everything figured out by now, right? But it's definitely been an adventure, um, definitely because we revise the state standards, the academic standards for English language arts over the uh, course of the pandemic. We did all of that by Zoom with an amazing group of educators from around the state. I think I'm still recovering from that a little bit. Uh, before I worked at the State Department, um, I worked for Deer Creek Public Schools. I was a middle school reading teacher, uh, which they called a literature teacher, for two years. And then I worked at Deer Creek High School as a sophomore English teacher, a creative writing elective teacher, and student council sponsor for 11 years after that. So I also got to be a part of the teacher walkout. And in fact, it was at the walkout one of those days that I had my interview uh, to get the position at the State Department of Ed. So that's a little bit about me. Great timing being there then. You know, I was a student teacher during the walkout, so I've had an eventful um, first three and a half years of teaching. You certainly um, have. Yeah. So you, um, you actually took over uh, your position from somebody we talked to earlier this summer, uh, Josh Flores. Um, Josh, awesome guy. Um, what is your what does your work entail um, in your current position? So whenever I introduce myself to people and they want to know what my job is, and I say that that title, Director of Secondary English Language Arts, their eyes get big. Sometimes they'll say, "Don't judge my grammar," or they'll kind of look at me like, "What does that even mean?" And so my joke, um, and I want to stress this is a joke, but I say. I'm the king of all the middle school and high school English teachers in the state. Um, but the day-to-day -day looks very different just depending on the project that's at hand. And so the uh, past year, like I said, all of 2020, we were working on revising the state standards because Oklahoma is a local control state, even though the office I work in is called the Office of Curriculum and Instruction. I'm not making curriculum decisions for any teachers in the state. I could make suggestions, recommendations, but it's up to each school district. And then sometimes even within a school district, teachers have a lot of control. I notice in the ELAOK Facebook group, which is a private group for English language arts teachers in the state, that teachers will ask all the time, well, what books should I teach this year? And what books do you all teach in eighth grade or 10th grade or sixth grade? And it makes me wonder, I, is there any red tape for these teachers in their districts where they have to run it past someone before they can just make curriculum changes? But I think because Oklahoma is so small, a lot of teachers do have that freedom to just 
do whatever they want. And that tells me they're probably in a small district because those bigger districts typically have those protocols in place. And so back to what I actually do, um, I presented a workshop earlier this summer for our uh, state agencies Engage OK in the Cloud uh, virtual conference. We did it virtually last year because of COVID and we did it virtually again this year. More people I think were maybe able to attend um, that way, I did miss getting to be in person and getting to see different people around the state. And, and Trey, we even were at Bartlesville High School um, a couple summers back for one of those Engage OK sessions. So um, I developed a presentation on the new standards indicating their new shifts and how they had changed and uh, presented that with my colleague, Deb Wade. She's the director of elementary English language arts. But going into it, we knew that 90 minutes would not be enough. So uh, we already planned to have a follow-up session, which we had earlier this week. And it's just a different pace at the state agency because when I was in the classroom, you know, I needed to have something new every single day. And I might be working on all sorts of content um, or tweaking this, that, or the other. But for this second session, we were just painstakingly trying to make every Google slide count and make sure the formatting was perfect. And we did a run through of the session to work out any kinks, especially tech wise. And we were working on that up until um, the day of the presentation, which was at 10 a.m. on Tuesday of this week. So. Sometimes I'm in a cross-functional team working with uh, people from different offices in the agency. Um, lately, I've been helping with some interviews because our office got an influx of federal dollars because of COVID, the ESSER funds. And so we've been able to uh, fill out our curriculum and instruction team. Uh, for example, our early childhood uh, team is growing and one of the positions which we have not filled yet and we really want to fill it uh, will be the director of the Imagination Library, which is um, Dolly Parton's foundation that sends a book every month uh, to a kid from birth to, I think, age four uh, in the state. And so some states are already fully funded, but our state is not um, or does not have a hub in every county. We have a few around the state, but not a lot. And so the, this director um, would help facilitate that. So. Uh, this fall, I will be on the road again, in person again, doing some fall regional workshops on standards implementation, and I'm looking forward to that. Well, that is a lot to unpack, uh, but we will <laughs> get into it. No, I mean, there's there's so many things as you're talking that I, I think I can ask you about. But, um, you know, really, let's talk about the standards first. Um, I first heard of you slash met you whenever I was still working in Putnam City. Um, you came by the ELA group kind of pre-planning stuff we were doing during the summer. Um, and obviously, I think at that point, the process of beginning to change the standards was really just getting started. But uh, I remember you handed all of us a nice little packet that had the standards in this nice little like binder, essentially. Um, and it was only my second year teaching. And so I know I know how to teach English, right? But relating it back to standards and things like that is something I think a lot of teachers sometimes might feel hindered by. Um, <clears throat> this last year though in Bartlesville, we uh, as an English team, my team specifically switched to standards-based grading. 
and it really shifted um, kind of a lot of our practices uh, with what we do in the classroom. Um, in your position, but also as a teacher, what do you think the role of standards should be um, whenever teachers are thinking about curriculum, what they're going to teach, what they're going to grade, et cetera? So I want to have this conversation um, a little bit more about what shifted whenever you moved to standards-based grading. Um, I'm really interested to hear more about that in just a little bit. So um, for me, uh, when I was in the classroom and then now as director of secondary English language arts, um, standards is where it all begins. It's what grounds the lesson. It's uh, those skills that students need to be able to do. And then you build your lesson based on the standard. What you don't do is buy something from teachers pay teachers and hope it works. And then work backwards and try to see, oh, is this um, a language arts lesson or is it an arts and crafts lesson that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with students improving their literacy skills? Um, because I want to see classrooms where students are reading and writing all the time. And that doesn't necessarily have to be through a, te a technology based way, like every kid needs a Chromebook or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can. I can talk a little bit about what shifted for us. So I think one of my big struggle, I'm very good at relating to kids and getting them to buy into stuff, but there were moments, especially early on in my teaching career, where I was thinking to myself, you know, I have this really good assignment, but how do I actually put into words what I'm grading and what I'm looking for? Um, and this was really before I started heavily looking at the standards. And then I just, I had a big kind of, I think I'm, shift of attitude especially with covid going on last year because we were we were in person the whole year um okay. masked up in person the whole time but we knew there were going to be lots of kids getting quarantined kids were going to be in and out of the classroom um and it was already you know difficult before to get kids to engage in work sometimes and it became exponentially harder with everything else going on um you know, we saw really what happened in districts that were online most of the year. It, it was hard um, to get kids yeah. to stay to stay focused and engaged and stuff. So my my whole one of the biggest things that's always bothered me, um, both when I was a student and now as a teacher, whenever I see other people do it, is um, behavior affecting grades. I think that that is one of my biggest pet peeves in the world. Um, and there's a lot of kids that I have in my class that do well in my class because of how we grade and think about our curriculum that struggle in other classes simply because they might not be the most disciplined. Um, they might be a little bit more disruptive, et cetera. We, we basically said, you know, we identified the core standards first that we wanted to make sure kids knew how to do no matter what. Um, we wanted them to be able to do these eight standards by the end of the first quarter. And so all of our assignments, we just focused it around that. And we made rubrics to determine um, strength level and progression. And then the other really big shift that we did is we, we told kids, you know, A, if we assess a standard week two, we're going to assess it again later on. Or if you don't do well and you think that you can demonstrate you understand it better, you can redo assignments. Um, and there was, you know, 
we were the only ones doing it. And so a lot of kids were really kind of weirded out by it at first because their grade didn't depend just on um, basically checking the boxes. Well, checking the boxes, being obedient and doing, you know, whatever I tell them to. It was really, I was saying, because I had some kids, I taught honors and traditional students, and I had a lot of honors students that had lower grades at the beginning of the year, and they were panicking, you know, because they never had below a B before. I taught grade B for years, so I can definitely imagine the, the stress and the horror on their faces. I love teaching 10th graders. It was a lot of fun. Um, I'm, I'm going to miss teaching 10th graders, but they, uh, you know, they're freaking out. And I had to reemphasize to not only them, but also to their parents. I'm like, listen, um, this is not the end of the road. This is the first nine weeks. And their grade with that standard is going to be different in four months than it is right now. Um, so I think it was a really good attitude shift and it really, it simplified my life. There's more work up front with standards-based um, grading because making rubrics and everything else takes time. But on the back end, my life was so much easier because whenever a kid asks, why is my grade this for this? I can just say, here's the rubric. This is what I marked. Here are the notes about how you need to demonstrate improvement to increase your score, essentially. So there was still a little bit of the aspect of, you know, they were still being motivated somewhat by getting high grades, but at the same time, there was also the shift in their mind of saying, I'm not perfect at this now, but I, I will be in a couple months. Um, and that really keeps kids more focused on improvement rather than that grade in the long run, I felt. Um, and at the end of the year, I had, I always do end of the year survey stuff with my kids and I asked them all, I'm like, what do you think about this? Would you rather, us do it the old way or this way and like 97 percent of the kids do it said do it this way um so yeah it was big attitude shift but um we were so successful as a team that now the entire english department um in our district is moving that direction so it wasn't a school-wide shift or even an english department shift it was just the sophomore english teachers that decided to try this out that's fantastic. Yeah, I um I have a great I had a great team this last year. Um and they they put up with me because I'm the person that's like let's throw everything out the window and and try something new if it works better. Whereas they they temper me because I I need them because they help me organize things and I was like the one that was like let's try this, let's try this, let's try this and you know it worked in the end, and uh, they were hesitant at first too. I had, it was me and two other two other ladies there, and uh, they were hesitant at first too. But I think by the time the semester rolled around, they were like, "Yeah, this is a lot better," um, and it really helped because you know if you have a kid quarantined for two weeks and they miss a bunch of work, normally you're just throwing zeros in a grade book, and it's murdering their grade, probably hurting their motivation, um, and they feel like they're getting buried under a mountain. Whereas with standards base, I just say, turn this work in when you can, because um, I know you're probably busy with everything else you missed too. And then I'll grade it whenever you turn it in. Um, we shifted from our late work policy changed. We uh, don't count off anymore for late work on grades. Um, instead, hey, this, is, this was your third year of teaching, fourth year? Third year. So it, it took me a, a couple more years than that to get to that place to realize if I'm assigning students 
this this project, this assignment, this paper, then there needs to be a reason behind it. And if they never turn it in and I can't grade it at all, in my mind, that's still a zero in the grade book. But if it takes them a month to get it done or one week after the official deadline, it shouldn't matter. They did the work. They've, they're trying to demonstrate the mastery of the skill or skills I'm checking for. I didn't want to take off late work anymore. And it came from a personal experience, which is silly that I had to experience it for myself to fully understand that rationale. But I was working on my master's degree at UCO and had completed all of my coursework, but needed to write my final paper. And I was teaching at the same time too. And I just could never bring myself to get it done. And my advisors certainly weren't going to hold my hand or email my parents uh, like a high school teacher might and say, Jason's not doing his work. Um, so what happened was I didn't get credit. And then I felt disheartened and I felt like, well, I did the classes, but maybe I'm not even going to get the degree. And so I took a year or two off from the degree. And then a different professor um, who's was a mentor of mine, but she wasn't on my committee uh, for various reasons. Uh, she reached out to me and said, we are going to find a plan to get you this degree. Here's this new path you can take. It was uh, a paper that was geared more toward publication in like an English education journal. But because I'd waited so long, I had lost credit. And so I had to take even more classes first before I could write uh, the final paper. Anyway, just going through all of that um, made me realize I don't want to take off points for late work ever again in my life. The students will just do the work. I'm going to grade it. And that's all there is to it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other the other shift that we had, is I said, you know, I mean, there has to be we've been having this discussion this summer because obviously I the way my mind works is I'm always like, how can we do this better? Um, and we have to have the discussion of like, how many times does a student have to show mastery over, you know, a standard for us to say confidently, yes, they deserve this grade for this standard, whatever that is. But one of the good things it also did is let's say that I assess the standard five times um, and they only get to do it three or four. I'm, you know, I'm an expert at what I do, supposedly. Um, I, I'd like to think I am. And I, I can confidently say, yeah, they only did this three out of the five times, but I know for a fact that they can do it. This is the grade they deserve. Um, that whole thing about late work, in my mind at least, really stemmed from this fact that we can teach students discipline and life skills in other ways besides a grade, because then at that point, it's just a carrot on a stick, and it's not really about learning. Um, so what we did is instead of taking off late work points, we said, if you want to turn in something that's late. We have, a, we have a seventh period at our school that's like a sports hour and stuff like that. But what we said is if you want to turn in late work, you have to come in during that seventh hour or before school to come do the work with us. Show us that you understand how to do it and then you can turn it in. And uh, I'll tell you what, my late work went way, way down after that because kids were not nearly as stressed. But also I had so many kids coming in to get help after school because they actually wanted to get better at something than I had in the past, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it worked well enough. And let me say this as well, is that LaDonna Chancellor, our principal, and everyone else in that building, 
um, that gave us the green light to do it. Thank God that they were around because there's a lot of other districts that um, probably wouldn't let you just go off the deep end and go for it. But they did, and now I think everyone else sees the benefit of it. So that's my spiel. I like it. Yeah, we can talk more afterwards if you want to about that. But uh, it was, it was, yeah, just really transformational experience. Um, the point being that we're going roundabout to get back back to what we're trying to talk about here. I think that the new standards are really good because they talk about you know, you have standards within certain categories that it says you know grade four, grade eight, things like that next to them, saying that they should have already mastered this by the time they get into this grade but it's also still expected that they're demonstrating that same thing. Um, so yeah, I'm going to just chime in. I, I feel like you're on a roll, but I do want to say that um, what you're referencing is standard five language. The mechanics skills specifically are the only ones in this newest version of the standards that do have that grade of mastery expectation tied to them. So commas, for instance, have a series of skills, I think beginning in second second grade. Oh, I could be wrong, but it goes through ninth grade. So then grades 10, 11, and 12 say students will write with commas, with commas correctly or something, grade of mastery nine. And so that's the expectation implied there is that students would know all those other skills listed previously. And one resource that we recently debuted in the new appendix earlier this week, as we've collected all of those mechanic skills together on one page for each of those different topics so that teachers can very quickly see, here are all the common skills students should know and all those other uh, punctuation marks. Yeah, and I think it's really smart because my, now that, now that I've already done this year of standards-based grading, I'm looking at, all right, how does this apply to not only other subjects, but just to English as a whole from top to bottom, right? Um, if you look at literacy rates, um, pretty much any subject, generally speaking, um, a lot of students really struggle with what seem to be baseline skills by the time that they're getting into high school still. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, the ELA, Facebook group, people will say, like, what should I teach, da-da-da-da-da, yeah. uh, and the issue of local control versus trying to have some kind of continuity. Um, what are the biggest barriers you think facing us as a state in terms of preparing our students whenever there's so little, um, I guess so little probably cooperation is probably the best word between everyone and what they're doing? So every school district probably wants to have uh, vertically aligned and horizontally aligned English language arts classes. Um, when I was on the road doing fall regional workshops uh, pre-COVID times, we talked about the four different kinds of alignment, internal and external, and then ver vertical and horizontal. And so in a district uh, like yours, where there's multiple sophomore English teachers you all probably have had conversations about what are we gonna teach this year as far as the big pieces of literature and are we all going to be doing that at the same time? Or does your school you know, provide books to students to read? And if that's the case, are there enough where all the sophomores can read this book at the same time or do we have to like 
take turns. So in your class, they're reading one book, but in a different class, they're reading a different book and it goes in a cycle. But we, what we don't want to happen to kids is moving. Um, like if they move teachers and they're like, Hey, I already read this, uh, back in eighth grade and here I am in ninth grade and it's the same district and they're reading the same book again. And I mean, I'd argue that you can learn something new from studying a book multiple times, but typically that is not how a scope and sequence or curriculum needs to be uh, designed. So it just takes communication. And in my position um, as director of secondary English language arts, I, I'm a bit of a lone wolf at times uh, because there are only 50 states. Not every state has a secondary ELA director. Some states just have English language arts, just one hat instead of dividing it in two. And I'm in a couple different groups that allow me to collaborate with different ELA leaders from around the nation. And that's when I feel most connected to my job is talking with other people who are engaging in similar work. Now, I say all that to say that being a teacher and shutting that classroom door sometimes can feel isolating as well. It's you versus a lot of hormonal teenagers. So yes, you're around people, which by the way, I very much miss being around uh, students. Um, but as far as like being a teacher, sometimes it can feel a little isolating, even with department meetings and knowing you've got colleagues right next door that you share a wall with. And I think the temptation is for teachers to feel like I'm all alone or I want to do what I want to do and not really having those important conversations like you did with your with your team to say, hey, it might be try time to try something new and kids are going to learn more and they'll learn deeper. And yes, it's going to be tougher at first, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. And I think when those kinds of conversations can take place, uh, then our students, no matter which of the hundreds of school districts there are in our state are doing better whenever those kinds of uh, when there's that kind of dialogue. Yeah. Um, Cause I've been, this was last year was my third year and it was my third different school district and seeing kind of the vast differences in the emphasis that different districts place and what's important to them is a, for a new teacher, it's, it's hard because you're going like, this is a completely different thing than what I was doing. Um, but also there's just a real lack of continuity, I feel like, with the different level students are at, depending on what district they're in, which that has a whole lot of other factors going into it. Um, all this to say, I this is something I think we can probably talk about for a second. So as an English teacher, obviously, like I, I want kids to be inspired. I want them to be invigorated. I want them to be challenged um, by what we read and what we talk about in class. Um, and it sometimes is hard whenever we're doing something like a standards-based approach. Sometimes I almost feel like I'm taking away some of the luster of that by using this really kind of mechanical way to grade them and things like that. Um, in your work, do you try to balance those things at all? Or do you just look at the mechanics of it and say, this is what our kids need to be doing? Well, I want to know more what you're kind of talking about, like limiting the kinds of texts that they can read or not allowing them to have a Socratic seminar discussion or, or what? 
Well, I'm saying uh, because standards-based grading is, is pretty rigid in terms of, you know, how you assess kids and things like that. Um, there are moments almost some, not as much anymore, but at least at first where I felt like I was taking some of the joy out of it by saying, this is what you have to demonstrate in order to get a certain grade. Now, as time went on, I got, you know, better at how I was wording things and grading things and everything like that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is whenever from the state department level, obviously skills and standards are probably priority one for you. But how do you try to balance? How do you try to balance setting good standards with also, I guess, making sure we're giving kids the ability to be inspired by what they're learning? Does that sure. make sense? We want there. I want there to be joy in the classroom for teachers and students alike, and what they are able to read, write, um, and discuss. There's an old video of me that Josh Flores filmed on the old standards whenever he was making some videos about the eight overarching standards. And so he he picked me for standard eight. I served on the committee that helped write those 2016 standards back in the day. And I talked about standard eight, independent reading and writing. And it's a passion of mine. And I feel like that is our end goal uh, for all of our students. We want them to be able to read and write on their own competently um, after they leave our classrooms, um, after they graduate high school. And I think it would be awfully difficult to use a standards-based rubric to say in sixth grade or 10th grade, okay, you're an independent reader now, or you're an independent writer. I'd be curious to see uh, what that would maybe look like or, um, yeah, what students would have to demonstrate to say, yeah, I'm a passionate reader and I know which genres I like and I know when to put a book down because I don't like it anymore. And I can choose to write a Facebook post that's satirical with a sarcastic tone, blah, 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 blah. Um, so those kinds of things are harder to grasp at. And I think we really kind of got closer to unpacking that or thinking about that whenever we had our summer academy back in 2019, Maya Wilson, um, or 2020 actually, it was during the pandemic, um, but she was able to come in virtually and present on um, the problem with rubrics or the dangers of trying to reduce everything down to a rubric, especially when it comes to writing. And if all we're doing is telling a kid, oh, this this piece of writing is a three out of four. And here's the rubric I use to determine that. But if there's no conversation and there's no um, understanding of where the writer's coming from and there's no um, conferring with the student as they're writing their essay, then what teachers are doing is they're looking at like the finished product, but it's more like an autopsy. It's like, well, it's already dead and the student isn't going to revise it or change it or learn anything from it if I'm just giving a grade to it. So I, I'm a bit of a hippie in my approach or mentality when it comes to thinking about grades and grading. And I want the focus to be on learning. Um, and being an English teacher should come with more perks. I'm not in a position in my role 
at the state agency now to make anything like this happen. But I think there should be a cap of probably 20 students in every middle school and high school English class uh, because of the amount of outside grading that it takes if, if a teacher is doing what they're supposed to be doing when it comes to providing feedback on writing and specifically thinking about probably rough drafts of writing and not final drafts. Because if a teacher can intervene at kind of the midway point and provide guidance and instruction, then the final piece of writing will be that much better and probably would not take as much uh, marking up or feedback in the end. Um, but it used to drive me crazy that there would be other teachers who could just leave school at 3.30 every day and they weren't taking anything home to grade and I'd be stuck there till five where I'd take my big bag of papers home to grade and then look at them and not grade them because I wanted to have an evening to myself to relax and then feel all the guilt in the world that I hadn't graded the essays the very first night that I had them, which is an unreasonable expectation. But you better believe I had students ask me the next day, you grade my essay yet? No, I, I have not. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's just tough. So I think that English teachers should have smaller classes or they should be paid more than other teachers. That's what I think. Now, I can't make that happen, but those are my beliefs. That's the official position of the uh, State Department, right? <laughs> it's the uh, Jason Stevenson position on things. Yeah, no, I, I completely get that. And, it, you know, I, I love... I love to engage kids in long form writing. Um, I, so this last year we actually, we changed up a lot of stuff with how we approached writing and we implemented a lot more project-based um, learning as well, just because I, I'm a cult follower of that, but. Uh, PBL. I, man. Learning. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'll get into that later. I don't want, I don't want to distract myself right now, but um, the, you know, the dread of knowing that a paper is due on a certain day and knowing I will not have any time for the next couple of days after that to do anything else except for look at those papers can certainly be a little bit daunting. So, you know, uh, whoever's ear you need to whisper in, I'm sure you can make it happen. Um, I do. What do I want to get into now? Um, let's, let's talk some practical advice stuff. Um, a lot of those people that we were talking about earlier asking like what they should read, what they should do. Um, let's say I'm, I'm in the shoes of someone who's a completely new teacher, um, that doesn't have any kind of curriculum given to me. Um, and I, I'm pretty much being given free reign to teach whatever I want. What kind of advice would you give to a teacher that's been put into that, that position on how to build their curriculum, what they need to focus on, et cetera? So that would be a really tough spot. I would hope that this teacher would at least have a department chair to visit with, to find out from the department chair or the principal or librarian, like, do I have access to any class sets of novels? Is that, is that something that's done uh, in this school? Instead, you know, do, do I need to go about it like through textbooks? Do we even have textbooks? in our school. Sometimes schools have textbooks that are falling apart. Um, sometimes there's uh, a separate literature textbook from maybe a writing textbook or like a grammar and mechanics guidebook and that sort of thing. But if it's a, a teacher, and are we going to say this is a teacher who's middle school or high school? Yes, probably. 
Right. But uh, let's say it's an eighth grade middle school teacher and they do not have the luxury of having English split in half to a reading class or a writing class. But like a high school teacher, this eighth grade teacher is expected. You do it all. Teach ELA. The kids are coming to you. Um, so at the start of the year, you really want to set up a welcoming um, classroom culture and you want to get to know your students because they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so it's about um, low stakes reading and writing exercises, um, gathering information to find out where their skills are. And yes, there would be an OSTP, um, Oklahoma State Testing Program, like ELA test that they probably took in seventh grade that the teacher could go back and look at how students did. Um, but they, this teacher probably wants to use some picture books at the start of the year to review different literary elements and literary devices and get to know students um, through probably some personal narrative writing at the beginning of the year. And that's one of the three major modes of writing anyway. Um, but there can be a lot of really fun, um, low stakes uh, writing assignments, like having a student make a timeline of their life. And I used to have my students uh, rank the event as being either a really good thing or bad thing or more neutral. And so you could kind of see the up and ups and downs of their life. And students will sometimes reveal things right away um, that lets you get to know them a little bit better. And sometimes they hold things back and you don't find out about all the different you know, struggles that they're going through until much later in the school year. And that should be up to the student. I never would want to give my student an assignment that would make them feel um, bad or feel pressure to reveal something they weren't ready to. But that's how I'd want to start my year. And I really think that one giant novel is not enough. Um, one novel per nine weeks is not enough. So if this teacher has the, we'll call it a gift, We'll, we'll say it's a silver lining if they're not being told what to do, that they could do literature circles with students. They could have students get in groups of four or five or six, and they get to pick what novel it is they want to work through. And the teacher would have a lot of upfront work to make this happen, right? Because they would need to be familiar with as many books as possible. And if that's just untenable the first year of teaching, then they may need to do one novel at a time and then just build up the amount of books that they know um, know about and then turn students loose into uh, literature circles. I, I think that sometimes there's a temptation for teachers to do things that are better for themselves instead of better for students. And I think specifically an example of that is whenever a teacher says, well, we're going to read a novel. It's the same novel I've taught for a decade. And it may not be the most relevant novel anymore, but by golly, that teacher has already made all the quizzes or all the assignments for it. And meanwhile, students are saying, this novel's boring, or I don't relate to these characters, or I don't see myself in any of the characters represented here. I taught a book um, which my students referred to as slob, my first year teaching high school. It was a pre-AP English 2 class. And its full title is The Secret Life of Bees. It's by Sue. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> Secret 
secret life of bees. They called it slob. They'd come into class and be like, we going to talk about slob today, Mr. Stevenson? They were not into it. And looking back, it didn't belong in that curriculum because we also were studying To Kill a Mockingbird that year. And it's kind of similar stories about a white girl entering a black person's world and learning a lesson about racism and race. We didn't really need that less that big thematic topic twice. Also, both books written by by white women about the black experience. So ultimately we got rid of that book. And it only took me one year of teaching it to realize this needs to go. Um, so I guess a little bit like you, Trey, I'm not afraid to mix things up every once in a while. But there are a ton of teachers out there in the state in that ELAOK Facebook group, who I see them say all the time, email me, I'll give you all, all my files. <laughs> they are very generous, which I think is wild um, and super kind and tells you the kinds of teachers, English teachers that we have in our state. So um, I guess that would be some starting advice for this teacher. No, I think, I think that's great. And you hit on something that I want to talk about for sure. Um, is student choice in uh, curriculum, but especially in reading. Um, I This last year, one thing that we implemented towards the end of the year um, with our, soft, our traditional sophomore students, along with our honor students, was an independent reading unit where they got to pick any book that they wanted to read, um, and we gave them two weeks in class to read it and do writing over it. Um, and... I cannot tell you the amount of kids that walked up to me afterwards and they were like, this is the first time I've read a full book since I was in elementary school. And these are 10th yes. graders. Um, it's so sad too, but that's awesome. But they fake read their way through school sometimes. Yeah. And that also has to do with the kind of, you know, assessments the teachers are doing, but I'm not going to get into that rabbit hole right now. Um, <laughs> if you can find it on Quizlet, you probably shouldn't be assessing it. Um, but I had more engagement in that than I had in any other reading I've ever done. Now, that being said, if you're a good teacher, I think that you can help kids understand the importance of a book that they might not find extremely engaging because you're relating it back to the real world implications of it. So, for instance, you know, we taught night to sophomores. Um, it's a it is such a heavy book for those kids. Um, and I think at times, you know, it can, it's, it's kind of hard for them to associate with it because there's nothing in most of their lives that relates to anything that was went through in that book. Um, but, you know, we were applying constantly modern day stories about the same kind of issues that happened during the Holocaust. And they're like, Oh, this, you know, this is an important story to talk about. Or, you know, we read Fahrenheit 451 with the sophomores as well. Um, and we showed them The Social Dilemma, which is, a, you know, a documentary on, on Netflix, if you haven't seen that before. Um, and it became automatically just that much more, you know, they, they didn't necessarily enjoy the book itself, but they enjoyed the fact that we're talking about things that are actually affecting their lives. Now, where I'm going with all this, I'm, I'm getting moved to seniors this year because they're splitting up our team so that we can, I think, implement some of the same practices around the rest of the building, which sucks because I love that team. But 
I'm teaching AP literature this year and then also traditional senior English. Um, and obviously AP literature, that's a whole different set of standards. Um, I definitely have to teach them specific things to help them test well and get college credit. Um, but I have a lot of freedom in that class because I can choose pretty much whatever I want in terms of, of the reading list. Traditional senior English. Um, have you ever taught seniors before? So only one semester and it was when I was student teaching at Shawnee High School and the unit that the teacher had me teach was Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I enjoyed it very much. And the kids hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they enjoyed it. I remember one of the, I don't know if it was a required assignment or an optional project that some of them could do. Like they made a soundtrack for the play and then justified why the song fit the different themes um, for each of the five acts. I still remember that assignment. Fun stuff, yeah. No, I, I, I love it. Project-based project based assignments, man, always uh, show you something different. So, you know, whenever I was looking at the senior curriculum, um, our school, along with most other high schools in the state of Oklahoma, traditional senior English is, uh, is typically British literature. And I looked at the title of that, and I went, I might find some of this interesting, but none of my kids will. And so kudos once again to my administrators. I went up to them and I was like, I want to throw out this entire base for the curriculum of being British literature and teach stuff that is relevant to them that they will actually engage in. And they said, go ahead. So this year I've, I've come up with six major big themes that are things I think that seniors that are about to be off on their own need to be thinking about in their life. Like, what are their moral and ethical values and what are they going to do about that once they're out of high school? Um, but so for instance, the, the very first unit is, it might seem a little rudimentary, but I think it's a good way to get them engaged is what is the concept of being a hero and what does it mean to them to apply those ideas essentially to their life, right? Like their next steps that they're doing, how does that idea of heroism play into who they're going to be? Um, and after we do some kind of base work and discussion in class, I think the third week of class, I'm going to tell them to find either a biography or a novel with someone that they think is a heroic figure. And then I'm going to give them a week or two in class to read and write about it. And then at the end, we'll have some discussions about it. But I'm using that whole theme-based idea because with each of those units, I'm going to let them choose a book to read that's based around that theme. And I'm kind of interested to see how it goes. So all this to say, how important is uh, student choice in curriculum? So to answer that question, we might think about anytime we've had a friend give us a book and say, hey, here, read this. And how long that book sits on the nightstand or the coffee table. Maybe you do dive right in and read, but I don't know about you, but I don't always like being told, you have to read this. Um, I once borrowed a Jonathan Franzen book from a friend who wanted me to read it, and I eventually tried to read it, got 30 pages in. I was like, why is this man so popular? The prose <laughs> too dense. I don't know what it was. I yeah. had that book for over a year, and I finally gave it back to my friend Aaron, 
And he still teases me and is like, hey, I almost bought you a Jonathan Franzen book today. Or, hey, do you want to borrow Freedom again? Anyway, there's so much more engagement when students get to have some sort of choice, whether it be the kind of assignment they are doing to show the mastery of the skill, the objective that you're teaching, but even the texts that are read in a class. If I get to say, oh, which Shakespeare play do I want to read? I want to choose the comedy. I don't want to choose the tragedy. Life is bleak enough as it is. Or I've already read that book. I moved here from a new school district and I don't want to read it again. I want to read this other book instead. And so even if the choice is presented as you can choose one of two, I think you have a little bit more buy-in than if you just said, we're all reading this lockstep right now. And your idea really opens up uh, the choices for students because they can read a memoir or biography or even fiction, it sounds like, if it fits the bill of someone who is a hero. I think you are going to have students who need some guidance. Oh, yeah. So you might have in your back pocket, like, here's here's 10 books I've thought of, but it's what I think of as a hero. And you may not agree with my choices. And really, I think who you need to talk with is your school's library media specialist, because they could probably help pull, put a list together with your help. Yeah, well, she's, our librarian's awesome. She helps so much. Um, and the, to keep talking just real quick, because I know yeah. we're nearing the end of our hour. We, we can um, go over but, if you're okay with that. But writing is so important, too, to give students choice and not just say, this is the only thing you're going to write. Um, but I think it's probably important to, or it is important to give students five or six different starts to a different narrative or informative essay or argumentative piece, and then say, now pick which one you like the most, which has the most promise that you really want to finish out. And that's going to be the one that you bring to final draft status. But if all you do is assign writing, but you never teach it, then your students are going to be at a disadvantage and they're probably not going to be the best of writers in the end. So you want to be showing them all sorts of writing skills through many lessons and have them practice on different prompts or different topics and then um, let them choose which one they want to turn into you. I love it. Um, I, I am all for giving kids as much choice as humanly possible in the classroom while also trying to maintain some semblance of order. Um, but I, I, I the balance. It can be tough at times. I, it is funny because one of my teammates this year walked into my class one day and I think that we were working on projects. So it was a little chaotic anyway, but like I, I prefer kind of the organized chaos method and she walked in and she like went white because <laughs> she's like, how do you do this every day? Like I thrive in it. Um, yeah, we are getting close to an hour, but we can we can go as long as uh, as you want, assuming that you don't have anything to get to right away. I will be prepping dinner in about ten minutes or so, but I can Sounds go just a little bit over. We will start. We will start getting to a wrap up point then. Okay. Um, so obviously, with your position, I know that there are certain things you can and cannot talk about. But one of the things I always ask people is, what are what are the most important things that have to shift? in education in Oklahoma for us to get back on the right track, in your opinion? Well, I will say that for the past three years at the State Department of Education, I've been able to see a number of different 
teachers and their methods from going to fall regional workshops and the Engage OK on the road um, workshops as well and getting to hear teachers' stories. And I even reached out to a couple teachers that I had followed on social media and said, hey, I want to just chat with you and hear about how things are going and how did teaching during COVID go and what went well and what what does need to change and you know how are you feeling and that kind of thing. And so seeing the strategic plan that our state agency has for education in our state kind of unfold over the past three years has been very encouraging. We have a statewide literacy plan that I got to help uh, be a part of and give feedback on and edit that I think is fantastic. I just don't know if all the schools in our state know about it and how it could possibly help them achieve those goals. So, you know, my my lens is more narrow, focusing on literacy and not so much just education overall. But when it comes down to it, and this is maybe too easy of an answer, but I think students need to be reading more and writing more than what they're currently doing. I think we can ask more of our students. And I don't want teachers to feel like, well, now I'm going to have to work more because teachers are spent. Teachers are burned out after all this COVID teaching or pandemic life in general. And so I don't want teachers to, to hear that and think, oh my gosh, I, I'm already sapped. I'm already thinking about leaving the education profession. And then here comes Jason saying, my students aren't reading enough or writing enough. But I think students can read and write more and that's going to improve their literacy skills. I don't know if another packet from teacher paid teachers is going to make a kid be a better reader or writer. And I don't know if another um, another online game that they play with their phones, and I can't even remember the name of this program I used to use. Just, I, I think we need to get back to the basics of, of reading and writing. Uh, we want our schools to be fully funded and we are kind of getting there, but not always. It just depends on the legislature and it depends on all sorts of political factors. But I wish that uh, English teachers weren't so swamped and didn't have 30 or 35 students in each of their classes. It's too much. Love it. Think that those are both great things. Yeah, I've been talking with a lot of people recently because I even have some education colleagues um, that have argued with me that funding is at an all-time high. We're just not spending it well. And I'm like, well, look at our per-pupil spending compared to pretty much any other state. Um, and we tend to be at the bottom of that. So um, last thing so that you can go make your dinner. Um, I want you to tell us about an educator or a teacher um, who had the biggest impact on your life and where you are today. Oh, is this kind of a closing question that you ask most of your people? Always. Okay, I like that very much. And I know um, kind of right off the top of my head, someone who I would say for elementary school, someone else I would say for high school, and someone who I would say for college, uh, for my undergrad, and then also for my my master's degree work for my grad level. So I'll let you pick which of those grade ranges do you want to hear about? Um, talk about talk about high school. Okay, so my uh, most impactful 
high school teacher that I had, I had for three years. Her name is Jennifer Davidson, Mrs. Davidson. She was my geometry, trigonometry, and calculus teacher at Holdenville High School from 1998 to 2001. And she was also my, my quiz bowl coach, the little buzzers that he buzz in like Jeopardy. Um, she was my quiz bowl, quiz bowl coach as well. And Mrs. Davidson uh, had very high expectations. She taught from bell to bell. The bell would ring. She would turn around and write the assignment on the board from memory that we had to get done that night. She took up the assignment at the start of class every day. Um, we had to fold them hot dog style, um, so vertically, and pass all of them to the right. And there was a system. And so that was part of her classroom management. But then we would sometimes have a pop quiz based on the lesson from the previous day and the previous night's homework. Sometimes there wouldn't be a pop quiz. But she, she made math really interesting and fun. And I remember making tessellations in geometry as one of my assignments. And she made, she made me want to become a teacher. There was one day in class that she said something to us about, you know, we are going to need more teachers in our state one day, and some of you should consider being a teacher. And it felt like she was talking directly to me. And so when I was ready to declare a major in college, I thought back to Mrs. Davidson and thought, well, I want to be a teacher one day. And I don't know if I want to be a math teacher because even though I, I loved math and it felt like a puzzle and I liked the challenge of it, to me at the time, it felt very black and white. And I wanted a subject that dealt more with the in-between, with shades of gray. And I thought back to how much I had loved reading as a kid and my junior high and high school experiences kind of took the joy of reading away from me and I didn't have the best best of time with it. I did I did okay. I had some good teachers. I had a few good experiences here or there, but nothing like that math class. And I thought, I want to be the English teacher that I never had. Um, and so that's why I chose to be an English ed major, even though my favorite subject in high school was math. And that impactful teacher was Mrs. Davidson. That is awesome. Uh, we do not get a lot of math teacher shout outs. I think that they deserve more love. So thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and thanks again for coming on. I think that we probably could have talked for a couple more hours if we really wanted to, but you know. I totally agree. I mean, we could talk about grading for an hour. We could talk about politics off the record for two hours. <laughs> we could talk about just our favorite, our favorite books. Can I ask you one question before Absolutely. I have to sign off? And that is like, what's your favorite piece of literature that you've taught so far in your three and a half years of teaching? So I'm including your student teaching experience oh. as well. But do you have a favorite? That is such an impossible question to ask me. Um, <laughs> Sorry to do that to you. No, it's fine. So this, I've taught AP Lit in the past, but it was my first year teaching. So I, I just decided to completely rewrite my entire curriculum this year. And, you know, AP Lit, obviously you're teaching the skills of very close analysis um, based on plot structure, characters, everything. 
So yes. it can seem a little bit monotonous, but I remember the class that I had that I look back on and I go, that was the moment I decided to be a teacher was my AP literature class my senior year because the teacher um, asked us questions that nobody else uh, had ever asked us. And she made you think and engage. And even books that I had no clue why we were reading them, like Waiting for Godot, of all things. Yeah. Um, at the end of it, I went, holy crap, I learned a lot about myself and, and what I'm, you know, what my life is like. So that's a tough question to ask. But I actually, um, you know, after the AP test happens, a lot of AP classes are just kind of work on other homework and stuff like that. So this year I said to myself, what are we going to do after that test? And I added a final um, final unit that I just titled The Future, right? And it's uh, kind of a reflective little moment, but this is, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I haven't taught it before, but um, I'm sure you've seen the movie Interstellar, right? I've heard about it. I have not watched it. Excellent film. Um, I'm just hurting so deeply. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's but I I'm having my kids um, get the novelized version of of the movie, um, and we're gonna read it those last couple weeks because there's this there's a really deep message in it, like Christopher Nolan always does with his films, that I think is gonna really come out whenever we read the book, as opposed to read them to, to watching a movie over it. So. I'm really excited about that. Probably my favorite book that I teach consistently every single year. Gosh, that's just such a hard question. Probably it's like who your favorite child is or something like that, or your favorite pet. It's like, I can't pick. They're all my favorites. I love Brave New World. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's dark. It does not have a happy ending, but... Mm -hmm. That book, whenever I get to the end of it with kids, um, I think that they have a, a very altered view of the kind of future that they that they want to help create in society. And uh, the other one is of mice and men, and that's just because that's like the time of the year that kids like get to see me cry in class because I read the end of the book to them every year if I uh -huh. teach it, and I I literally cannot not cry whenever I'm reading the ending of that book. It's and, a sad book. Uh, yeah, I like I like the dark books. I'm, I'm not so, so much of a happy story kind of guy, but, you know, those are mine. So, sorry, that was probably a little longer <laughs> than you wanted, but... Hey, uh, if you're going to ask an English teacher about a favorite book, you better expect, like, a very, you know, heartfelt response. I do need to go, but I'll answer my own question real fast because it's only fair. So, the book that I replaced Slob with in the sophomore curriculum at Deer Creek, Secret Life of Bees... Um, I chose The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. Mm. And that is a really amazing, beautiful book. It's got some really tough, rough parts and content, but I felt that the sophomores uh, would be able to, to handle it. And they did year after year. And I just think it's such a beautifully written and beautifully told story. And I always looked forward to teaching it. So love it. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, we will, honestly, I'm going to try and get you on again, hopefully in the future. We can talk about some other stuff next time. So Sounds good, Trey. Thanks for having me.
Absolutely. Um, everybody, thank you for listening today. If you have, make sure to go check out the last couple of episodes, and we will be back at you in a couple days. Have a great night.